about 10 days ago, I, uh, I got this thing here. Um, it's a pom-pom. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, I've never started a sermon with a pom-pom, so we'll, uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, no, the, uh, and so I went uh, out to, I'm a huge hockey fan, uh, went out to uh, get a bucket list item, watched my favorite team, the Colorado Avalanche, play. Uh, with my buddy Chris. Um, so we went out, you know, last week or a couple weeks ago, and they give out these pom-poms here, and I'm like, what is this thing? Apparently, uh, this is like tradition in the playoffs that, you know, you, you, you have the, the pom-poms and that kind of stuff. Uh, this is the most unifying pom-pom I've ever had. Now, I've never thought of a pom-pom as being unifying, uh, but it was. If you've ever been to a hockey um, game, uh, you may be a hockey fan, and if you are, let's talk. Uh, but there is a whole uh, swath of kinds of hockey fans. Uh, now, I'm sure many of you, I'm just going to let you know, because most people think there's like one kind, and I don't know, you know, you have your stereotypes, and they're probably pretty true. But uh, there is a range of, uh, of hockey fans. So, uh, so my buddy and I were in Denver, Colorado, and, and going around, everyone's going into the arena, uh, and, and you get people that are, you know, coming in, coming in, uh, wearing all their, their camouflage gear. Uh, you get other people that are coming in with, uh, you know, the, the, the top, you know, uh, just t- head to toe in uh, high-end gear and jerseys and all that kind of stuff. You get other people that are, you know, wearing like the cheapo knockoff gear. Uh, and then you get like these business executives that are dressed with, you know, like suit and tie. And so, I mean, there's just all these different kinds of people. And I'm sure even within that, we have all different kinds of ways of, of approaching life and all those kind of things. So we get into... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the ball arena, which is, uh, I didn't know that like the mason jars were so popular, but they, they support this whole team here. So we get 10,000 people inside of this arena here to, um, and they're all, all a bunch of different people, but we're, we're more unified in the fact that we're Colorado Avalanche fans. Um, but, but even how we take in the game, kind of a similar way where maybe we all come from different places and we come into church and we're all sitting here. There's a different way in which we take in the game together. My my row is an example of that. So I'm there, uh, you know, a couple of Wednesdays ago with my, with my pom-pom, uh, and, and I've got the guy over to the left. So this is one of your stereotypical, um, you know, uh, uh, people in, that watch hockey games. This is uh, uh, the aggressively ragey hockey player fan. Uh, so this guy over here, he decides, oh, by the way, we are, my buddy and I, like, we sit on the very back row, like nosebleed, nosebleed. Like you can't get, you're outside the arena if you're that far away. So we are literally touching the back wall and we always do because I, I don't know why. Uh, well, because, well, I know why, because it's just ridiculously expensive sometimes. So this guy over here, we're over there, uh, he's just raging and he decides that he wants everyone around us to know when he disagrees with the ref or when he just doesn't like what happened. And he's seriously, I'm not joking, this guy will with bare hand, just turned, and he just punched the metal wall every time. I'm like, what is wrong with you? All right, I guess that's how you enjoy a game. Uh, we get this, this lady a couple, uh, a couple seats down, and she's, uh, she's standing there uh, next to my buddy. I'm glad I got him and not her. She is uh, what we know, and you're going to start to see this now whenever you go to a hockey game. Uh, she's sitting there with her, her drink, and she's what we like to call the, uh, the, the shoot-it lady. Uh, the the shoot-it lady is everywhere. And it's a big problem. And she sits there, and all she says is, shoot it! Shoot it! It's like, they're on defense, lady. Don't do that. Uh, just shoot it. He has no idea what's going on. Just, and then every period and every drink, more aggressive. Shoot it. She's just the greatest coach there is. Uh, every hockey game has a shoot it, lady. 
And so we got those two. And then I got my buddy sitting next to me who is absolutely wonderful. He has a master's degree in engineering. So he's viewing the game differently. So I ask him, like, what's going on in the game? He's like, well, the goalie's getting hot. He's got a, he's got a history of this hot streak here. And now, you know, Flurry, he's getting up. They're going to have to figure out some ways. He's weak on the top, you know, top left side. And so they might be starting to shoot there a bit. Also, defensively, Vegas is really doing the neutral zone trap. So they're going to have to figure out another thing. Like, you are different than those two people. <laughs> At least, you know, you're actually drawing this thing out. And so we're all taking in the exact same game a very different way until a certain thing happens, the avalanche score. And then the pom-poms come out and the ridiculous song and we all start going and it's just, I mean, it's just insane. It's just, and it's just crazy. And then at the same time, we all go, hey, hey, hey. And it's everyone is doing the same thing. No matter how they're observing the game, they all know the unifying act of the goal pom-pom in playoff avalanche hockey. And my buddy over here, I look because he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's professional. He's got a job and he does that. And I look over and my buddy is throwing like the hardest sidearm pom-pom I've ever seen. I was like, what is okay? And I jump in and it's contagious and it was just glorious. Uh, all the way till like 1145 at night, we're just, you know, doing the pom-pom and uh, it's insane. Now, if you've been in a sporting event, you have seen something like the pom-pom. Uh, but it's not only in sporting events. There are other times where there's an event that no matter what your disposition is, no matter where you're at, you know there is a unifying thing that's happening. We are all unified in this thing. Things like uh, holidays try and do this. They try to remind us of, of the unity that we have. Fourth of July is a great one where we try to uh, remind and remember what it means to be uh, an American. We do this at, you know, Memorial Day. We do this at, at Christmas even. Uh, we do a lot of these things. There are traditions that we have. I would even say one of those times that I experienced this not in sports uh, was this last year, derecho cleanup. It felt like the week after derecho happened, it was like everyone forgot about everything that we were fighting about when we couldn't be together. And they all just went into everybody's yards and we all unified in the fact that we're going to put together houses and cut up trees and get rid of them. And for a week, there was just this beauty. Like everyone just knew it. Like, let's do this same thing. It's a unifying event. Well, these people, these events, these things are not tapping into something that, that, that they, they've just discovered all of a sudden. This is something that is Christian through and through. This is something that the church has done for centuries. This idea of unifying around certain things, certain acts. Now, before I get into this, the answer is going to be the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, but before I get into this, I want to ask this question of why do we need these unifying things? We need these unifying uh, activities because we're a very divisive people. Our hearts are prone to division, but we're not alone in this. I guess this isn't just a, a 2020 kind of a problem. This isn't a, uh, a, um, a election cycle issue. This isn't a American uh, issue. It's a human condition that we all are prone to division. We're not alone in this. When we look back in history, we can see that there is a great church that we have referred to over the last uh, several weeks as the Church of Corinth, a hot mess. And we can look at the Church of Corinth and we could see that there is division even in one of the first churches. And we're going to look into this today with, which, uh, which, to this text that, that our, our brother Glenn uh, read with his silky sweet voice and uh, we are going to find that there is a great unifying act 
in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. But we're not going to look at the, the, the church of Corinth to say, shame on them, we're better now. I hope that you will be humble enough to open yourself up, to open up your heart, open up your mind to, to see how we might be like them. So before I even give you the entire urge, I want to set up our text today. So if you have a Bible, uh, I know we've, we were in uh, verses 23 through 26, but maybe a Bible reading tip is sometimes it's, it's, it's no, not sometimes, almost always it's good to read what's before and what's after a text so you understand the context it's in. So I'm actually going to take the bulk of our time today is going to go through verses 17 through 34. Uh, we'll go quickly through them. It'll be more of a survey, but I want to set it up to understand what's happening in this Corinthian church and how it applies to us and how baptism and the Lord's Supper, what we call sacraments or ordinances, are a unifying act for us. So let's, uh, let's look at this. Uh, I'll start here in verse 17 through 19. I think it's actually on the screen for you. You can follow along uh, as I read this to see that there is an inherent tension that comes with any gathering of people. It reads, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I want to pause there. Take a look at that on the screen. Those last couple of lines uh, should be a little bit surprising, or we should know them really well, but they are surprising in the way he says it. It says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think sometimes in church, we think that a good church all thinks exactly the same thing and falls in line and there's perfect alignment. Paul says to the church that he's correcting, hey, when people get together, they disagree. And there are factions among you. There's a difference. There's a tension. And that's actually just a human thing. It's not that the church is bad because you disagree on maybe some point on the end times. It becomes bad when you embrace that, you build structures on that, whether it was intentional or not, and then you rehearse and celebrate it so that it becomes full-blown division. There may be a disagreement or a tension, and that can be okay and healthy within a, within a church. It's going to be present. However, division, when those tensions become divisive, We've gone Corinthian. Let's read a little bit more. Uh, in the next verses, uh, 20 through 22, that's going to set us up for our text today. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You can go to the next slide. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend this, uh, you in this? No, I will not. So what Paul's saying there is, there's a difference. You're all a difference, but you're actually embracing the difference in a way that's divisive. And he puts forward the Lord's Supper. He says the Lord's Supper is actually supposed to be a unifying event. It's a time for us to all remember that we all are in need of a Savior. However, you're doing this in a way that is utterly bizarre, and in doing the act the wrong way, you're not doing it at all. I think we could map this, though the text isn't there, it's on the Lord's Supper, we could map this to the way we approach church, 
There are times and ways in which we do church. We gather together where we don't think of people who may be less fortunate or without the same means as us, maybe a car, maybe technology, maybe whatever. They don't have the same accessibility as we do. I mean, if you're here, you're, you're pretty much the same. You are the haves <laughs> that have made it here. And sometimes we just don't think that way and we can do an event. We can do a repeated action together in a way that accentuates the divisiveness. It's just a thought to think of. The text here, though, is focusing especially on the Lord's Supper. And it's saying when you come together for this thing that the Lord has created to be a unifying act, you're doing it divisively. Under the guise of unity, the Corinthian church came to, together in a way that advanced division. This division shaped their practice to the point that they're no longer observing the Lord's Supper. And we need unity as a church. The church is, uh, the, the manifold wisdom of God has been put, in, made manifest in the church. We need to be healthy. We need to be unified. And so it's really important for us to do this. And I think we need to be unified, as Paul understands rightly, not simply because Stonebridge Church needs to be the gosh darn best unified church ever. We need to have the greatest corporation that's ever had this, this perfect alignment to the mission ever. That's not what we're going for. He says we need to be unified because we've been called to unity. Even more than that, if you are a Christian, who, and a Christian being someone who has confessed their sin and asked for forgiveness through, Christ, through Christ's death and resurrection, then you are forgiven. That's a Christian. That all Christians are united. So it's not just that we're supposed to act united or be united and we're called to be united. We actually are that. And so live the reality that you are. And that's what the Lord's Supper and baptism do. They remind us of the reality that we are. There's a great diversity here. Even as I'm looking out of the pulpit, I see a diversity of, of, of theology that's okay within limits, a diversity of personality, a diversity of gifting, but there's a unity that brings us all together so we can cheer that pom-pom all together in the name of Christ. So the urge for us today is that because we are united together in the death and resurrection of Christ, we are to make our unity in Christ our first thought every day. Make our unity in Christ your first thought every day. So the title of the sermon is part of our uh, church series, uh, uh, sermon series. The title of today's sermon uh, is, What are the Sacraments for? And so I'll give you the answer to that, and then we'll develop it a little bit more. Uh, the sacraments help us to remember that Jesus Christ is our unity in death and in life. So the sacraments, what are the sacraments for? The sacraments are for reminding and proclaiming the unity we have in Christ. So uh, this is how the, the service or the sermon will go. Three points. We're united in thought, word, and deed. I just want to kind of give a framing thought of what actually the ordinances are doing. Uh, and then the second point will be on baptism, that we are united in, uh, or sorry, it's on uh, the Lord's Supper. We'll be, we are united in death. And then the third point will be that we are united in resurrection life, and that's what baptism is symbolizing. And that will follow with actually doing the thing we say we do. We're united in thought, word, and deed, the ordinances. 
So I want to give you maybe a framing thought of just how that unity happens. So I may pull back a little bit more of the, the pom-pom celebration because it was so fun the first time I want to do it again. Uh, and so in that pom-pom celebration, what's happening there? There's this, this threshold that happens. So I guess if you could imagine a doorway right here. There's this doorway between the abstract and, uh, and, the, uh, or the abstract and the concrete. There's this idea that I firmly believe that the Colorado Avalanche are the greatest hockey team that has ever graced the face of the earth. That's in the abstract realm. And apparently there are at least 10,000 people that believe the same thing as me. Um, though hopefully there are another, you know, several hundred after today's sermons because this is really, I'm really convincing here. Um, and, uh, and so we've got, we've got this, this, this abstract idea and then there's this threshold. And when they score a goal in real life with a real puck in a real net in a real room on real ice and the whole thing is real, I say, aha, that is true. It pushes me further into there and I'm between these two worlds of what I thought and what I'm experiencing and I'm now in this space where it becomes more real. Now that's just kind of a ridiculous example off of, off of my ridiculous pom-pom thing. I think I've said that phrase like pom-pom like 15 times. We'll see how many more I could say. Um, but that's, that's that threshold there. I want to go to something infinitely more meaningful. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's that time where we take something real. I have real bread. I have a real cup. I have real juice or, or wine or whatever it is. I have that. And I am now doing something that makes, with my senses, makes that thought I know to be true more of a reality for me. In baptism, we hear the water. We see the person go down or under. Or if it's you, you feel going down and going on, uh, coming up. You hear the words that are said as they go down and come up. And with your senses, you are now experiencing death and newness of life. There is a threshold that happens there. This is a big, important place of spiritual formation. Because if we don't have a gospel that happens in real life today, then we are just people who have a fun idea. But I think the gospel carries a whole lot of weight. And the reason why we're all here is because this actually happened. This is actually real. And all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. And this is why we celebrate these things. The other, the other idea to understand these, these, uh, these ordinances is not simply the threshold happens, but the repetition of it, the building of habit. We do this again and again and again so that it builds up that desire, that we get more comfortable standing in that not yet and already state. So that we're not just thinking, oh, this is great. It's uh, words and a story off of a Bible, but we can read it again and again and again. We could celebrate the things it is saying again and again and again, and we could say, this is real. It's crazy, but it's real. I am forgiven my sins, and that's real. I can have newness of life, and that's real. I can feel the freedom of being saved from slavery to sin, and that's real. And so there's a habit we have, a repeated action that we do together that builds up that comfortableness, that familiarity, with being in that threshold between the abstract truths that are real and the concrete reality of what it means today. That's a beautiful thing. With some of that idea, 
which I've expanded on quite a bit. The E-Free Church, that's, that's us. If you go to Stowbridge Church, we're an evangelical free church of America. Our statement of faith says this. You can follow along here as I read it. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. That's a mouthful, but it's a statement of faith. Statements of faith are always a mouthful. Uh, so let's just take it apart here real fast. Uh, they say we, we, the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances. So an ordinance or a sacrament, they're very, very similar. For the sake of our time, we're going to call them similar, though there are nuances that make them, make them quite a bit different. Um, the Ephraim Church uses the word uh, ordinance, um, though if you look at the end, there is something nourishing to the believer, and that's kind of sacramental language uh, as well. It says, what visibly and tangibly express the gospel. I think that's the big point. If there's anything you write down uh, in regards to this statement here, it's that these visibly and tangibly express the gospel. This is the threshold idea that I'm talking about. They, they visibly and tangibly express the things we know to be true, but are abstract. And then when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, they, con- they confirm and nourish the believer. There's signs of the gospel that the Lord Jesus ordained for the church. That's why we use the word ordinance in the E-Free Church. God ordained that we do these because he knew it was good for us to understand that, that threshold of the, the already not yet, but he also knew it was good for us to do this together, and not just at our home by ourselves, but to do it together as the church. There's a unifying pom-pom cheer that happens when we do these things. So setting that up, now we'll get into the bulk of our, uh, bulk of our text here. Um, point two, we're unified in thought, word, and deed by the ordinances. Point two is we are unified in Christ's death, and that is the Lord's Supper. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are observing first and foremost that we are all unified in the Lord's death. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, and 24. This is, uh, this is the passage for today. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what I'm going to do over the next little bit is I'm going to slow down quite a bit, and I'm going to unpack how we understand and read the Bible here. So I'm actually going to show you a lot of my sermon work so that you might not simply be aligned to what I decide the text means, but I want you to be unified in coming to it with me um, so that we can march ahead in joyful pom-pom-like celebration. So look at the text there. Verse 23, the first word, for. That's an interesting word to put there. This is why we backed up and read in context. Uh, The word for means, when you read, Bible reading tip, when you read the word for, especially in the New Testament across the board though, uh, it alerts us that the author is explaining the reason for why he just said what he just said. It says for, now I'm going to give you the reason for why I just said what I just said. So then we have to ask that question, what did he just say? Uh, what he just said in the verse before is, shall I commend you for this divisive practice? No. So let me understand that when he gives us these words in these few verses, the Lord's Supper 
is not simply words that we like engrave on our, you know, on our, uh, on our, on our table that we, we, we do the Lord's Supper. It's not the stuff that we say just as a, a, you know, just a ritual preamble to taking the elements. He's actually giving this as a corrective to division. Should I, should I commend you for this divisive practice? No. And the reason why I won't commend you for this divisive practice is because the Lord gave us a thing that unifies us. The entire point is unity. And so how do we get that unity? Because we just take and eat, do this. I guess he says do this uh, in remembrance of me. Is that what unifies us? No, it's the whole thought that goes behind it. So here's another Bible reading tip. Slow down whenever you read the Bible. Slow down long enough to meditate on it, uh, which is real slow. Uh, any Bible reading tip is going to just encourage you to slow down. So here is the one that I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you, is ask questions. Boil down verses so that they say the very shortest sentence that conveys the idea. I'm going to do that with this text right now. You can look at it. It says uh, a whole bunch of stuff, but if we take out all this extra baggage that, that Paul inserts in here, which is good, we basically can read the sentence in verses 23 and 24 that say, for... The Lord Jesus took bread and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. It still retains that cohesion. That's what, that's what happens. Then you ask this question, why does Paul give us all this extra stuff? Because that's where the juice and the flavor are. That's where all of this comes out. This is where the unifying work is. So the things that I left out in that verse are, I received this from the Lord. We have to ask, why did you receive this from the Lord? Or how did you receive this from the Lord? What also I delivered to you? Why did he deliver this to us? Uh, on the night when he was betrayed, when he gave thanks, when he broke it, and he said, this is for you. There's all this extra stuff in here that packs this thing jam full of unifying gospel work. So I'm just going to ask a basic question off of some of what's left out. Why even mention betrayal? giving thanks, and the breaking of bread. It seems that if we read quickly, betrayal could be referencing Judas's betrayal on the night he was betrayed. Now, I've always gone there. It's Judas. But let's pause and say, is there any other betrayal happening? What if we would consider that maybe Jesus was given up for all of our betrayal of him? Using some of this same language, even some of these same words, we go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, you can follow along on the screen, and we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, the same word betrayed, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's great. It's not fun. It's not, it's not you know, make, it, make you want to dance kind of a unity, but we're all here. We all deserve this iniquity, uh, or we all deserve the punishment for this iniquity. We are all unified in needing Christ. But Jesus uh, gives these instructions at the Passover meal, and it's been set up so many times here when we, when we do the Lord's Supper that at the Passover meal, Jesus proclaims, I am the sacrificial lamb who has died for the forgiveness of sins. And so at this meal, there is a great unity that happens. He says, all of you sheep have gone astray and they've been brought back and unified 
by the sacrificial lamb who has forgiven their sins. He's laid it upon himself that you can be forgiven. And that the wrath of God for your sin might be passed over. That is a beautiful thought when we slow down and chew on these words, when we slow down and meditate on the word of the Lord. And I could have told you this, that we take this so that we're unified, but I feel like going the long way sometimes helps us to understand quite a bit more of how we are unified. So what does that mean for us as we move ahead? Well, we move ahead to the cup, and I'll I'll move past this one pretty quickly because there's a unifying effect here, is that in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink this in remembrance of me. We remember something. What are we remembering? The covenant of blood. And you can be a real person when you read the Bible. It's okay to read that Jesus picked up a cup and he said, hey, this is blood, drink it. And it's okay to say you, because that's, that's kind of gross. Uh, if the gospel is not true, why does he talk about blood? Why does he talk about covenant at a dinner party? Because he is telling us that there is a new covenant. This harkens to, uh, uh, back to Jeremiah 31, who says that I will make a new covenant with you. And any time God makes a promise, he makes a covenant with people, he seals that with blood. And so when the blood of the blood of the lamb is spilt, we know that this covenant is there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. For this, uh, and they will be my people. And he seals this with blood. He takes their iniquity, puts it on Christ, and gives us a righteousness that is Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it should bring about some emotions because there's a reality there. The emotions, the thoughts, the attitudes that it, that it brings out should be that of repentance. That we ask for forgiveness. It should, be, um, it should be one of gratitude that the Lord has given us, has done this for us. Didn't have to, but chose to. but it should bring us into a humble, grateful unity. And that should be that unifying pom-pom cheer when we take that. As we all see the table and we say, my sins have been forgiven. Thanks be to God. I mean, that is the word that has been used for centuries for the Lord's Supper is Eucharist. That is the Greek word for thanksgiving. And so we see this played out. We see this played out as, as do uh, the, the sacraments uh, and the, the ordinances. In verses 27 through 34, I'm going to go a real fast fly over this. Uh, you could study it a little bit more. In two sections here, he says, you were divisive. You were celebrating that division under the guise of the Lord's Supper. The corrective is the unifying work that happens in the action and the activity of the Lord's Supper. And now as you go from that, these verses, 27 through 34, are going to say, and now do things and order yourself so that unity be, uh, be uh, established and maintained. 
In verse 28, he says, Let each person individually examine him or herself so that they might not be judged severely. So examine yourself that you are understanding what's happening here the same way. And not the same way as the guy next to you, which I would hope, but the same way as the Bible says. In that, we have great unity. But this is not only an individual thing, we do this together as a whole. Verse 33, so wait for one another so that, so that it will not be judgment for you. So we do this all together. So out of these convictions, it has been Stonebridge's practice that communion is received only by believers. That is, uh, who through faith have been forgiven their sins. And so that's why we always, we call it fencing the table. This is only for believers because we need, we need to help you examine yourself. If you haven't reconciled yourself with Christ, this is going to be weird. We want you to joyfully remember this and be in unity with all of us. And then we also make a point to do this together because there is great formative work that happens when we celebrate something like this together. Now, I've done a bulk of the work in point one of, of, of establishing the threshold and the habit that we have. And now, in point two, talking through the unifying act of, of what happens in the text here on the Lord's Supper, I'm going to go really fast now in point three because we've got a lot of the framework here uh, to understand what baptism is. We read on a little bit more in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse, uh, verse 12. Our point is we're united in Christ's resurrection. So we're united in death, now we're united in resurrection. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So even Paul moves us on to this idea that we all become one, and we're all baptized by the spirit in one. But he does say, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It's not saying that baptism actually puts us into the body. It's saying the spirit baptizes us into one body. Back in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, we read of, is explaining that the gospel is for the Gentiles. He's come to this realization on his own a bit. Uh, and in Acts 11, he quotes Jesus and he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And through his words, we are able to understand that it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of unification made possible by the death of Christ. And this is real. But it's an abstract unity that must be proclaimed to the world. He says, if this person has actually been united with Christ, has been washed clean of his sins, why wouldn't we baptize them to tell the world? This is what Peter has just said in chapter 10, and he's explaining this phenomena of what happens. And in, in, in Acts 10, he says, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is a great celebration. Pa uh, Peter is saying there is something happening on the other side of that doorway that is real for them. They have been brought into the community through their faith. And the Spirit, let's actually see that in action. Let's baptize them and relive the gospel for that. Now, Paul gives us a picture to think of, of this. And I'm just going to read, uh, this is in uh, Romans 6. This is maybe an image that you should be thinking of as we move towards baptism today. 
In Romans 6, Paul says, For if we have been united with him, that's that abstract thing, in a death like his, that's the Lord's Supper and the cross, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's baptism, the newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. The idea of baptism, that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. The reality of history moves from our minds towards our heart. It informs our affections, our emotions, our attitudes as we observe baptism. And some of those affections, some of those emotions that should well up within us should include that idea of newness of life. And when you see someone be baptized and brought up, you can celebrate with them. I know that experience. I know the newness of life. I can remember my own newness of life, that freedom from sin. As I praise be to God. We also moves us, though, to a obedience. And I'm not enslaved to sin, so I don't need to be enslaved to sin. It moves us to an obedience and a joyful obedience. And when the world looks at the church, his unified and joyful obedience to Christ their Savior, they're going to say, that's weird. That's different. They joyfully obey their Lord and Savior who's on the other side of that door that I'm not so sure I think exists. We can bring that reality to them as we remember death and resurrection as we are united together. And so, because of some of these convictions, some of these truths that we have here, it has been the practice of Stonebridge to baptize only those who have professed saving faith in Jesus Christ. We want it to be actually proclaiming what's happening in them and the Spirit's work in them. And so, because of this, this is also one reason why it hasn't been our practice to, uh, to baptize infants, because we can't confirm that that work is actually happening in them. But we also then uh, baptize uh, believers, we also baptize by immersion, because we see this as the most effective symbol of that death and resurrection unity of the believer. And so we'll move here towards baptisms, but I want to reinforce this point. Make our unity in Christ your first thought. Make our unity in Christ your first thought. Maybe I'll say this three different ways to, to, to help us land it. Make Christ your first thought every day. Bookend your day with Christ. Remembering his death in, in confession, humil humility, and gratitude. Remember his life in joy. Don't walk around in guilt and shame. You have been forgiven. Remember Christ is your first thought. Also, make unity in Christ a thought. This last year, disunity has been a really good thing, that, or a, a big thing that Christians have got really good at. Let's reverse this. Paul says, I do not commend you of this. We need to go to Christ. We need to make Christ 
and the unity we have with one another, even in our differences in diversity. That is what binds us together. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. If we are forgiven, we have newness of life. This is all of us. Remember this first in all of your conversations. You may have disagreements on style of worship service. You may have disagreements on what time Jesus will return. But in the end, Christ is our Savior. He has given us newness of life. And then make unity in Christ the goal of your every day. Raise unity. Speak of it. Enter into it. Follow Christ's example of how to create it. Self-sacrificially. I think sometimes uh, musicians say everything I would say in a sermon so much more effectively and beautifully. And so I just want to give one refrain from a, uh, from a hymn, a beloved hymn. Um, Helen Lemel uh, wrote uh, about 100 years ago. I've actually posted this and a couple of links so you can listen to it on the, uh, on the Stonebridge, on the online community in Church Center. And so you can find those and listen to those. Uh, they're just beautiful. The, the song is, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. This is effectively what the Lord's Supper and baptism do. So I'm going to read these for us, and then we'll move uh, towards the actual baptisms themselves. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I would love it to see Stonebridge have the reputation of a people who look deeply into the face of God and are unified by that. The things of earth don't get under our skin. We just let them go, and we live in that newness of life, and we remember and we proclaim his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. My goodness, what a great church that would be. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died for our sins. We thank you that he was risen for newness of life and that in unity with him, we are risen as well. You are a powerful God. You are a good God. You are a true and real God. And even though many of your truths are so very abstract to us because our minds are so finite and we can't grasp them, they are true. Increase our faith to understand and cling to your truth. Give us faithfulness to come together, to remember repeatedly the death and resurrection of Christ, that it might nourish our souls and confirm our faith. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now I, I should have told the first service this. I'm going to tell you this now. Um, uh, I really see the Lord's Supper and baptism as, uh, as a rowdy event in the church. Okay, so I use the pom-pom here. Uh, because it's that thing, that moment where we say, aha, there it is. Like, let's celebrate this thing. So you can choose to uh, think of this as, you know, a nice putt and a, you know, good job and a, and a golf clap. Or you could see this as the overtime goal where your team won because we are seeing a highlight reel of the Lord working in someone's life. 
And so because, uh, because we believe these to be so very important and so very true, we've actually captured uh, the testimonies of, of the three being baptized here today in this uh, brochure that was handed to you. There were two others that were baptized by Robin uh, in the first service. Uh, the three that are baptized here uh, now today uh, are going to be baptized uh, not by a pastor, but by someone who has been very effective uh, in discipling them in their life. It's a beautiful thing to see discipleship in action here. As someone has received and then moved on, now we get to see this celebration of the work that's being done here. So I have talked enough to set this up. It is okay to cheer, to yell, to get rowdy. If anyone wants to come up and grab the pom-pom, you can. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them do the baptisms here now. Um, hello, my name is Fareed. This is my wife, Jen, of almost 17 years. And uh, she wants to get baptized. Uh, based on your confession of faith... I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Hi, I'm Adam. This is my son, Tony, and I'm proud of the step he's taken today and honored that I can be with him in this part of his journey. Tony, have you accepted Christ and want to walk with him the rest of your life? Yes. Based on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My name is Jamie Jonas, this is Todd Kinnon, and I've had the privilege of um, reading the Bible with Todd and, and, and seeing how God has changed your heart to just have a desire for his word and a desire to grow in holiness and, um, and just to uh, strive to uh, grow in, in his image. So it's just my honor to baptize you and by your profession, of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior 
and as your Redeemer and your hope. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Buried in Christ, risen to new life. Praise God for that. Um, if, uh, if that is something that you are interested in, you say, I want to know more about this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in that. I've never actually made that, that profession there. Uh, if you're wondering about Christ and, and, and knowing Christ, uh, please reach out to, uh, to the elders, to the pastors. Let us know that. Our next baptism is actually going to be at family camp. Uh, that'll be at the end of July. So if you're interested, let us know. We can start that conversation now. We'd love to celebrate this. This is the, the highlight reel of the winds of God amongst his people. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Let's pray for these, uh, these, these brothers and sisters here in their baptism. God, I thank you for the work you have done in and through Jen and Tony and Todd. I pray that as they live in the newness of life, that they would do so with joyful obedience. Thank you for all of these disciples that have walked along them. Pray that you would encourage them uh, in their work, that though the work of discipleship is oftentimes seems to be fruitless, that they could celebrate and see the reality of the fruit of the ongoing love and relationship of, of, of you poured out through them. With us as the community of faith, pray that we would come alongside them and continue to spur them on in faithfulness. Thank you, above all, for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the good news that you save sinners. In Jesus' name.